I have three gigs lined up in December playing bass for Emma Holden Trio. December 14th at Springwater, which is where the Black Keys, I think they filmed one of their music videos. It was either Gold on the Ceiling or Little Black Submarines. December 21st at Radio Cafe over in East Nashville. And December 22nd at Blue Bear Barn in Antioch. We actually played there back in October. That was our first gig. They streamed it live on Instagram TV. It was a really cool place. I enjoyed the atmosphere. It was in this barn that looks super rustic inside. Just looks really cool. Um, they have an American flag like in the backdrop or something like that. It's, it's just a pretty cool place. Um, and you can follow Emma on Instagram at Emma the Holden. And if you should need to get a hold of me, either for bass playing, producing, songwriting, or to just be your friend, you can find me at the underscore Poptimist or the Poptimist Podcast at gmail.com. Ra will be holding a special artist showcase at City Winery on December 19th. At this showcase, there will be live music, dance, visual arts of all sorts and of all kinds. They don't discriminate. They welcome everybody. My friend Marissa Olenicek is going to be a featured special effects makeup artist. So we are going to be selling some tickets for this thing at $22 a piece. That is, of course, if they don't sell out, they are selling like hotcakes. You have until December 10th to get the tickets. Um, If you end up getting a ticket through me, you will be able to get one free makeup session. Uh, Either you can have like a glamour thing done or something like that for a party. Or Marissa is also willing to teach you how to do makeup. So if you want to learn how to do like gory makeup or if you want to learn how to do um, uh, glamour makeup or something like that, she can show you how to do it. And you will be able to impress all of your friends and all of your relatives This event is going to be a great date night, a great networking event, so I would love to see you out there. Please reach out to me. Ask me about it. I'd be happy to help you any way I can. Um, And let's see. What else do we need to know about this? Uh, Just check it out on my Instagram. I'm going to be reposting Marissa's stuff, and you'll be able to take a look at it and really see. So that will be that. Lauren Anderson has a new Christmas single out called Mr. Christmas. You can find her at Lauren Anderson Music on the Insta and find the song wherever streaming is. She has a couple of dates coming up here in December. On December 8th at Sierra Nevada Brewery in Fletcher, North Carolina, she'll be playing on the 12th at Bus Call Showcase at Tin Roof here in Nashville. Then Mojo's Boneyard in Evansville, Indiana on the 16th. And on the 22nd, Fitzgerald's Nightclub in Berwyn, Illinois. Here is the new single, Mr. Christmas. Santa throw away my previous list I think I finally figured out the perfect gift Kindly disregard all of my other wishes 
ashes All I really need Is I gotta be my Mr. Christmas Drop them off tonight Under my mistletoe You don't have to wrap them up In a big red bow I just wanna cuddle up And give somebody hugs and kisses All I really need Is a guy to be my Mr. Christmas Somewhere in the frosty air Santa, if you're so inspired Could you find me a winter wonderland dream To light my little yuletide fire So inspired Could you find me A winter waterland dream To light my little Yuletide fire Don't think that I've been naughty And if you agree Take the sugar cookies Beside my tree It'd be so nice If you left me something More delicious All I really need is a guy to be my Mr. Christmas And be so nice if you left me something more delicious All I really need is a guy to be my Mr. Christmas I got to be my Mr. Christmas I got to be my Mr. Christmas Welcome to the Poptimist. Today we have Dave Isaacs of Nashville Guitar Guru. Thanks for having me. Yes, thank you for coming on. So what is your social media? Where can people find you? Everything is Nashville Guitar Guru. So that's Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and the website. So slash Nashville Guitar Guru or NashvilleGuitarGuru.com. Okay, yeah, perfect. And I was taking a look at your website this morning. You seem to really put a heavy emphasis on education. Yeah. Do you have a strong background in education? Did you go to music school or did you have mentors or anything like that that kind of showed you the way, so to speak? Well, yeah, all of the above. I mean, I, I pretty much always had a teacher. I mean, even from when I started playing, I had a teacher right at the beginning. Um... I knew after a year plus of playing that I wanted to pursue music. Um, I came from a family that really uh, valued education and so I was pretty much expected to to get a degree, even though I had my, uh, my, my arguments about it as a teenager. Sure. But I did end up going to music school, got a bachelor's degree, had a master's degree in guitar performance. And then I started out teaching just as a side thing, really. Here's a way to make some money with a guitar in my hand. And it just began to snowball. 
And ultimately, when I got to Nashville, I, I got here really without an agenda other than, you know, I'm here to live in a new place and, and see what works. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's all these different options that are available to you. So you get here and, well, are you going to pursue an artist direction? Are you going to look to be a side player? Do you want a road gig? Are you, are you joining a band? Are you doing this, are you writing songs? And so since I'd always pretty much always been teaching, like I had a, a gig at a local music store pretty much right away, like my first week in town. And it just sort of grew. After a few years, I got an offer to teach part-time at the Art Institute, which is closing, or if it hasn't closed already, uh, very soon. And so I started off, I was teaching one class there specifically because at the time they offered benefits to part-timers. And so I was teaching a music theory class for health insurance. So I was getting like, you know, 15 bucks in the paycheck, but the rest of it was going to the, the benefits. And then I got offered a part-time gig at Tennessee State University, and that turned into a full-time gig for a few years, um, at which point I concluded that I don't do well with institutions, and I went back to working on my own. And all of that time, I've been performing, writing songs, putting projects out there, and when I left TSU, you know, I just walked away from a salary and a benefits package and all that stuff and said, okay, I've got to really, yeah, I've got to concentrate on the thing that's bringing in the most money right now, which was the teaching studio. And I'd been, since I'd been here in Nashville, you know, before I came from New York originally, when I lived in New York, I had a neighborhood teaching business, so I'm working with mostly kids and teaching guitar, piano, whatever. And when I got here, now I'm working with songwriters and I'm working with performing artists and I'm starting to do workshops with the National Songwriters Association and other groups and things like that. And so there's a, a niche that really only Nashville allows for and I just really found that I really, really enjoy it because you're, you're first of all working with people that are highly motivated because they're serious about what they they're doing. They moved all the way here. They, moved, they came all the way here to do something. And then on top of that, they, they recognize specific needs. You know, you're, whether you're a performer or a writer or both, it's like you're working with music as an expressive tool. And so even if you're someone that just started off by exploring, which I totally think is probably the only way you learn how to play, ultimately. Like, I don't care how much schooling you got, you still have to be an explorer. But, you know, everyone gets to the point where you realize, okay, here's my limitations, here's what I can do today, here's what I'd like to be able to do. And so it just lets you get into music in a different kind of way. And I'm, I, I love talking about music, I like, I've found that I like looking at the way things are put together and how do we understand this and how does this relate to that and I could geek out on that forever so I kind of fell into or I discovered I shouldn't say fell into found a way to make a living with music that appeals to my intellectual side and also is a a great way to really serve people to really help people because there's a real need for sure, yeah. It, um, I think moving here, for me, well, so I've been here for three years. And when I first moved here, of course, you're just like, I want to do music for a career. I don't know what I'm going to do. I was maybe, geez, 
21, 22, 23, somewhere in there. And um, <clears throat> it, was, it was a big difference moving here. Because as soon as you get here, everybody is the best where they are from. Yep. Everybody is the best from their little hometown. And everyone always told them, go move to Nashville. You could be a star. You could do this. You could do that. And I think one thing that I've realized even since being here for three years is after, after like two years, you start to get into not necessarily veteran territory, but you've already been around the block because there's already been a ton of people who have left. Right. Because people get here and then they don't know which direction to go. Mm-hmm. And for me, when I got here, I was just like, okay, I want to be a bass player and I want to do this. I want to do that. Cause that's, that's what my main instrument is, is bass. So once you get here, you have to know where to look. No one tells you anything. It just kind of all happens by luck. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the, the one aspect that I really dig about Nashville is you have to, you have to just figure it out and music just makes you figure it out. And the only thing that propels you sometimes is the love because oh, yeah. there are immense times of transition and hardship while you're here trying to figure it out. And it sounds like maybe that was something that you faced going from being in a secure salary position to being your own boss. Right. Which can be very challenging. I'm, I'm right in that sweet spot right now figuring all that stuff out. Oh, yeah. Because it's like, okay, so if I don't work today, then I don't make money today, mm-hmm. and then I, I can't eat or pay my bills. And that part never stops. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, though, that when I took that college job, like when I went to work full time, that's the first time in my adult life, really, I guess really the first time I ever had a salary. You know, so it was the first time that it wasn't that hustle of that thing of, if I don't really push hard today, I'm going to have nothing coming in. And it's not like that made me stop pushing. It just that it took the job took so much of my energy that like there wasn't a whole lot left. I mean, I had, you know, I still had the teaching studio. I had a handful of private mm-hmm. students. I was playing some gigs, but it was, you know, that was kind of all consuming. And the funny thing was it took me, I feel like a year or two out of that gig to get back into fully self-motivated mindset. Like the whole time I was working there, I was thinking, man, if I just had time, I would do this and I would do this and I would do this. And then you get it going and obviously there's the need. And so I started pushing right away. But as far as really being fully in the what can I make happen today, that that took a while to get back to it. It's funny, one of the things that you, when you'd sent over the, the pre-interview questions, and one of the things was about stuff you never thought you would do, you know, or that you didn't anticipate. And the the business side of it and the entrepreneurial side of it and like making a study of that and how do you make stuff happen I mean that's been such a huge area of growth and since I've been here in Nashville because like you said you're you're surrounded like talent's cheap skill is cheap everybody's good mm-hmm. so you you know the your value comes in other ways and yep. how do you make your way what can you offer this? yeah and, and then how do you distinguish yourself? And so much of it really, and I mean, I, I knew this before, you know, to a certain extent, uh, in the sense that I was always surprised by when you saw an opportunity come up. Like, before social media, when people are just starting to network on the internet, 
and you had message boards and then email groups like Yahoo groups and these different things where you'd get on an email list and people would be communicating that way, right? And so people would post things about a gig and so I would jump on it and say, oh, well, you must have gotten a whole bunch of responses for this and someone would say, no, there was you and two other people. And it's just, I don't know, this reputation that musicians have is maybe not totally undeserved because it's that simple, like, and I would tell if I had a student that was asking, you know, that was looking to get into something, say, you know, just being on the ball puts you ahead of 90% of people. Sadly. Could, yeah. yeah. And, you know, you come here and that becomes a different story. And especially now with social media and the, the speed of communication, somebody puts something up on Nashville Gig Finder and, I mean, what have you got, 30 seconds? <laughs> yeah. It's like trying to be, you know, the old days, trying to get the first call in for concert tickets you know, and you, you're two minutes after it opened. In queue. Yeah, exactly. It's already sold everything's out. Everything's gone. Yeah. But, you know, that's that's so much of it, just really learning how to keep the hustle going and to to be an entrepreneur about it. And we don't, you know, as musicians, I'm going to get a gig, you know. Someone's going to tell me where to go, and I'm going to show up and play. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're in a band, especially if you're in a band that has management or something like that, then, you know, or even just working for a band leader, you're just following directions. You're, and that's cool. That's fine. Um, I, I guess I finally realized after a while that ultimately I'm just not that good at following directions or like there's a part of me that whether I'm just selfish or ornery or whatever the heck it is, mm -hmm. but I've just always, I, I'm happier kind of choosing my own, make my own decisions, and even, you know, like, I was a classical guitarist when I was going to school, or at least that's what I studied, I say that was, it's, it's funny, you were saying about tangents, and so here we go, yes. but, okay, but I'll come to this, that, um, I've been doing a lot of writing on, not just the educational, like, here's how you do X or Y in music or on a guitar, but just about you know, kind of looking back on my learning experiences and what motivated this and what motivated that and what did I take from this? And so I, in looking back at that, it's really interesting to sort of look at coming from a suburban kid in the 80s listening to metal and, you know, living in that lifestyle and that mm -hmm. world and then going to school and getting into this classical guitar world but then at the same time, I'm discovering jam bands. I'm discovering the Dead and the Almond Brothers and all this stuff. Oh, yeah. Here's this other world. I'm in these parallel universes. And then, you know, I really was devoted to the classical guitar for almost 10 years. And then in my mid-20s, just a year after I finished graduate school, and I was practicing like eight hours a day. I wanted to enter this competition, which was going to be this career-making thing. And blew out both hands, basically. I just got a serious repetitive strain problems and had to quit playing for six months. Really? And this is the first time I've ever heard anything like this yeah. happen. Oh, it's it's a serious occupational you hazard. You must have been really shredding. I was, well, I mean, it was intense, you know, because, like, you know, this competition, if you win, you get, like, a debut recital in New York City, and it's, like, a, it's a career-making thing if you, you do well. 
and you have to play challenging music, and you have to play it at a level of excellence. And so kind of getting back to this entrepreneur thing, you definitely have to find a way because there are some established paths, but you still have to build yourself a, a concert career. And so I was really the only person out of my class or a handful of people out of my class in grad school that were actively like going out booking concerts. And so I'd find a church hall and rent it and put on a concert. Or I'd invite some friends in, we would do something. We were trying to do like these little avant-garde classical things in like clubs in New York, which was just kind of fun and freaky to try to do some of this stuff. But you're still, as a guitarist in the classical world, you're alone most of the time. Mm -hmm. You're playing by yourself. You're spending hours in a practice room. I always liked, I mean, I always loved bands. I love the interaction and all that. And still, I'm happier doing that. But there is this kind of isolated thing that goes on, both in the sense that you're spending all that time alone and performing alone, and then having to do all that hustle, you know, yourself to find these opportunities. It's a lot of solitude. It's a lot of solitude. And, you know, so I almost feel like I, I knew less about band dynamics because I'd been in bands, like, you know, with friends and stuff. Sure. And through high school and college and, and all of that, playing local bars and doing that whole deal. But when I started playing again, I had to make a decision what direction I was going to go in and just decided that I, I want to write songs, I want to play in bands, this is what I need to get back to. And so I started doing that. So I, I get myself a gig with a band that's management and this and that and it was it was an oldies act that didn't think it was an oldies act so the guy that that was the you know the the artist up front um had this total elvis thing going on but he wouldn't admit it and he would get really ticked off if you called him an elvis impersonator because he wasn't like doing the outfits you know uh -huh. but he had the sideburns he had the hair he had the whole the moves and he was doing, so this is, you know, 1993, and he's doing all of this stuff, like, mid-late 60s hits, oh, yeah. and calling it a classic rock band. I was just like, all right, this is confusing. And he had this manager that I couldn't quite ever tell what he did, but he supposedly was dealing with some people in Memphis, and it would be like, yeah, well, Memphis called, they said such and such, and I, I know nothing. Yeah. You know, like, New York City aside, you know, I came from Long Island, which is a... Uh, with all respect to all my friends and people I love back there, still a much more provincial place than than it realizes, I think, in a lot of ways. and Or at least my world was, you know, and for, for what that was worth. And it was like, oh, okay. And, of course, the whole mythology of, like, you know, Memphis. You know, what does that mean to a musician? But meanwhile, we're playing these, you know, little bars in Long Island, and I'm like, all right, well, this is... And I... After a year of that, said, you know, I, I really want to start my own thing. And so I start pulling some things together. I find some musicians. And the first group of people I had, a couple of friends that I knew from other projects that I'd done that I pulled in. But we needed to find a bass player. And so I did the whole deal, put an ad in the local, you know, local music rag and auditioned some people. And I connect with this guy who's playing with a an artist who was signed to an indie label who needed a guitar player. So I go and I start playing with him, 
But then there's this whole other dynamic of like, okay, what's my role in this? And I'm the new guy here, and I'm certainly the greenest. I mean, it was a good band, really good players. Mm -hmm. And lots of dropping names. I know this one, I know that one. Like, this guy was a lot more plugged into the whole, like, New York thing um, than I was. But there was so much weirdness that I think some of it was was this guy in the way that he carried himself, but a lot of it was me kind of trying to figure out the dynamics of what was that role and what was the difference between being a sideman and being the leader and the difference between being in a band versus working for somebody. The customer's in, always right. In their band, mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, it wasn't like I was trying to be confrontational or anything. I just don't think I really even fully got it. And also, you know, like this guy didn't like the fact that I had something going on which, you know, should have been a signal to me for, for some other things, too. But the long and the short of it is, one of the things that I learned getting here, and for whatever it's worth, I, there's certain things I think took me maybe a while to figure out, but it took what it took, is that if you're going to be your own... You know, we're so used to, as musicians, like, I'm going to cobble together a living, I'm going to do a little of this, I'm going to do a little of that. And yep. I'm going to you know, make sure that I make ends meet because I take whatever gigs I can take. And that's great. But then if you're trying to do something as an artist, it, it's kind of hard to make that work as a side thing. You know, like, I don't think I fully understood until I got to Nashville what a full commitment to that meant. Because everyone I knew, I knew very few people that were full-time professional musicians, and the ones that were were doing club date gigs and wedding bands and tribute bands and things like that. They were working local musicians. Um, I didn't know people that were living an artist's life because they weren't there on Long Island. They were traveling. They were here or they were touring or whatever it is they were doing. And then so you get here and you start realizing what that means. Like to be able to build your whole life around the ability to go wherever you need to go when you need to get there because those opportunities don't come around again. You know, so, you know, you talk about coming here at 21, so I was 36 and, you know, married and with a house to, and a mortgage and all of this. Mm -hmm. And so you just realize, like, oh, this is a whole other deal here. So to a certain extent, the, the teaching business coming to the forefront was partly because, well, this is now, at this point in my life, the lifestyle that A, makes sense, B, that I really would like to live at this point, like I don't really want to live on the road right now, is one of the things we got here and, and my wife said, so, you know, now that you move me to a new city, are you going to go on the road and leave me here? And I said, no, I don't really think I can do that. Yeah. And, you know, then you start getting offered road gigs and it's, well, we got a two-nighter in Minot, North Dakota, you'll be gone five days, it pays 300 bucks. And you go, and at first you go, oh, yeah, yeah, cool. And then you start, you know, counting things on your fingers and go, oh, <laughs> is yeah. this the way to do this? And, you know, if I feel like if I'd come here when I was 21 and unattached that, okay, that probably would have been fine. Sure, yeah. You know? so it's A different just, season of life. Yeah, it's just the, the twists and turns and the circumstances. And, like, the all those different experiences good for where I'm at right now because of the mentoring aspect too that to be able to have been a side player 
made some mistakes, this was good, this was not so good. Have been a band leader, made some mistakes there, this was good, this was not so good. So when I'm working with somebody who is trying to navigate their way through with that, at least I've got something you know, to offer. Mm-hmm. Instead of having a single path where I know this world real deeply, but I don't, didn't have the experience of anything else. You have a flavor of each of the kind of hustles that are in Nashville. Yeah, the different roles. And just understanding that you do better when you commit yourself to a role. And I mean, even as a teacher, when I started to specialize more, so I'm not, you know, like I don't work with a lot of kids, I don't work with a lot of beginners. Um, I do both of those things, but I've got a, a baseline standard of, you know, what somebody in this for and the kind of work that I want to do. And I used to teach anything I can get my hands on. So teaching guitar, teaching piano, bass, mandolin. Um, I was doing some voice coaching for what it's worth, you know, just trying to help people develop a, a voice. And I did a lot better when I said, I'm going to focus on guitar and I'm going to focus on these kinds of clients. Not stylistically, you know, mm-hmm. but like in terms of choosing who I was going to work with. And not trying to put myself out there as a freelance guitar player, because ultimately, you know, you if you're devoting, if you're really making a commitment to a particular path, then you don't have the energy to really do the other gig well enough, mm-hmm. you know, or as well as it could be done. You know, I mean, I'm quick on my feet. I've certainly done plenty of gigs where I just showed up, and if I was playing in the, in the lead guitar role, you know, as long as I've got an idea of stylistically what's going on, I could get by without a lot of prep. Mm-hmm. You know, I could get by. I mean, my first few gigs in Nashville it was like that. We need a guitar player today. Okay, show up, play. Yeah. And which are valuable experiences yes, to have. Absolutely. You know, just you figure it out quick is mm-hmm. like this is something I can do or this is something I can't do right. and I gotta go home and practice to work on these skills. Right. Or even say, This is not something I want to do. I'm gonna take a step back and figure it out from there. Mm-hmm. So in terms of being committed, what would you say that decision for or let me figure out how to word this correctly, what does commitment look like in music? For you or a broad kind of a thing that you would tell your students? I think it means taking a good look at everything that you could be doing and everything that you do well and don't do well and what you love most and don't like so much and trying to find that nexus of here's what I know I do well, here's what I know I can really excel at if I apply myself here is what makes me happiest out of my options, and here is what I think I can make a living doing. Self-awareness. Yeah. And, you know, that that was the longest journey, you know, of just trying to figure out, well, what makes sense. It comes in time through just doing things, God. succeeding, failing. Way more time than I would have liked. <laughs> yeah, but, for sure. Absolutely. But it is what it is, you mm-hmm. know? It's the most and, sacred part of the journey that we take partake in as musicians, I've found at least... Because it brings so much stuff to the surface, not only in terms of your playing, but in terms of your personality. Because you're working with all of these personality types Mm -hmm. and all of these egos and trying to figure it out. Because there's there's different egos for a lead guitarist. There's different egos for a a lead guitarist that's an artist. There's different ego for a drummer, a bass player. 
for a singer and just trying to figure out what those dynamics really are and the only way to figure them out is to by seeing them sometimes multiple yeah, times yeah and that was like the the one of the biggest educations of Nashville I mean, one was like I said understanding what commitment really means but also the social aspect of you know this is a this is an intense community that I've got to learn how to navigate through and recognizing like I said when talent's cheap and skill is cheap what's the currency and the currency is being reliable being professional and being a good hang just being easy to be around yes. and to hang out with and like that took much too long to figure out you know and I look at the people that I know that are successful side players that have gone on to get really good gigs or to be in demand be busy and they are easy going they are roll with it people they don't have any problem in you know being in a secondary role they are comfortable they are happy in that role adaptable they're adaptable and they're unflappable they can just deal and you know i i look at all right well here's what i went through i had the skills to be a side player but in terms of the temperament like just a little too whether it was ego or whether it was anxiety and just a level of of agita about the situation all the time like it wasn't comfortable and natural but it wasn't comfortable and natural to be a band leader either because now you're trying you you're responsible for everybody hurting the cats yeah and you know it's like you have to go through all of that and finally realize okay so this is where i'm best suited and then you start to realize, okay, now I need to look for these personalities, you know, and some people are better at just fitting into that, into whatever comes along than others. But, you know, for me, what it finally meant was, all right, this is the situation that not only am I happiest in, but I'm going to excel the most in. And it makes me think of, and this is like on the business side of it too, so when I started really kind of studying business and entrepreneurship and learning about these things, which is mostly just reading a lot of books, listening to a lot of interviews, podcasts, this, that. And I don't remember what book this came from, and I wish I did. But there was an idea about what they called the hedgehog concept. And it was basically, so you have a fox and a hedgehog, and the fox is smarter and faster and more agile and better equipped to win in a one-to-one -one fight. All a hedgehog can do is roll up into a ball, but when that hedgehog rolls up into a ball, there's not a damn thing a fox can do. That's it, you know? So he's basically just, you know, sidestepped all the disadvantages and said, this is what I do best. And that's the idea. You yeah. look for the thing that you can do that's going to put you above that situation. That's, I think, maybe the greatest advice that's been given on this podcast so far. <laughs> well, I wish I could take credit for it, but yeah. I can't give the credit where it came from. It's, it's really important to figure out what you're good at, because e even myself, you know, I, I take lessons, um, and I have a bass teacher, and we're going over a bunch of stuff that makes me uncomfortable or that I'm not good at, and that's something I might not even ever use any of the, the shit that I'm learning right, right. now, but I want to at least know it. Yeah. And... For me, I think that the biggest part of being a great player is 
being able to read a situation appropriately yes. when you're in it. Yes. Um, and knowing, and again, that just comes from experience. And mm-hmm. I am, I am no pro. Don't get me, get me wrong on that. But it's just knowing the situational awareness of what kind of, or is it like a blues combo? Like what, what kind of situation are you walking into yeah. and what is this person looking for that they haven't told you because no one tells you shit usually right, right. until you mess something up. Mm-hmm. That's when they tell you. But the other thing, I, I kind of like that, it, like having a good band leader, the band leader really just allows you to be the player that you are yes. within the confines of whatever that vision is. That was the hardest lesson for me to learn, you know, is to recognize I might have this player or that player, and they're both skilled, they're both easy to work with, but they come at things a little differently just because everyone plays a little differently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in the beginning, and I think this is something that I've seen now over the years, now I can chalk up to inexperience because I've seen other, I've seen performing songwriters do this, this insistence on, it's got to be this, it's got to be this, it's got to be this. And on the one hand, you've got people who have achieved real success that still have a reputation for you know really clamping down on the people they work with, and this is what I expect from you. But I always felt like musically things were the best when you just got people that you trust and you just let them do what they do. And to be flexible enough, and this is this kind of speaks to my... What makes me happiest as a musician, even though all those years of, of playing classical music, which was beautiful and learned a lot from it, and you know, there's a lot of, of depth and flexibility even in playing the same notes every time. With that said, I discovered that what I like the best is for things to be a little open-ended. So if they can go this way, they can go that way. And so if somebody plays something that you didn't expect, a good player will play something you didn't expect, but it fits. As opposed yes. to, you know, some guys that I work with when I was not quite at the, you know, in in the pool of professionals in the same way. And so then you get the drummers that throw in fills in the middle of a phrase just because they're bored. Uh-huh. You know, like I'm just back here amusing myself. And fortunately that doesn't really happen so much anymore yeah. here. But you realize like... No, that's not right. You know, like, this is not a person that I can trust. I would learn from, you know, mentors that I had, people that I worked with who were more experienced, and they would say, no, all you got to do is pay attention. It'll tell you what you're Listen. supposed to do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, use your ears. Yeah, and I would get, I get so frustrated when people don't listen because, you know, I spent so many years learning how to do that. And But ultimately, in a, a group setting, when you've got people that you trust doesn't even matter like one of my favorite bands to to play with over the years i work with a a couple of guys here in town uh, that have been good good friends of mine for god 10 years now brooke sutton and rob crawford brooke bass player rob's a drummer and it started off with my you know having those guys were just in the the call list of people that i would call for a gig and we ended up just kind of solidifying into a trio and we played together for on and off in different situations for 10 years now. And the the trio is still called Medicine King when we get together and play. And my favorite thing about that band is that everyone is wide open. And so any one of the three of us could throw something out there that's never been in the song before, and the thing takes a hard left turn and everybody goes. 
Uh-huh. It's just like you can turn on a dime. Follow the music. And yeah, it's it's so exciting to do that. Now, there isn't always a place for that, but it's I've just always found that exhilarating. And that band maybe there was something of an extreme in terms of the philosophy of what we were doing. And it was a band in the sense that everybody could take it one way or another. And just like you said, you walk into the situation, if you're on a singer-songwriter gig, or even if it's the kind of thing that's really more song-focused than playing-focused, then you've got to limit your, your choices because you still have to serve the song as opposed to, here's where we open things up and it can go wherever. And even coming from all those years, and, and I still... Like, I, I have an abiding love for the Grateful Dead, no matter how much they could have sucked. I um, love the Grateful Dead. I'm and, into it. you know, like, even that, because I would get frustrated listening to them go, God, how many times are you going to blow that change, guys? Come on. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, you know, knowing that here are the composed parts, and here's where it opens up, and there's a place for this, and there's a place for that. And... Um, even within that, though, within the composed parts, here's some flexibility. I, I just find that exciting. But it comes back to that thing again of you work with people you trust and you don't have to micromanage them. And, the you know, as a band leader, that was my biggest mistake in the beginning was trying to micromanage, not recognizing that you'll get more by having a team that where everybody has something to contribute. But then the other side of that, and this is, again, kind of looking at who you choose to work with, is when you get the guy who will play fills in the middle of a phrase because he's bored. You know, that was, you You needed a, you needed a drummer on the gig, so, you know, it's like you, you cast the first person in the role that fit the suit. And, okay, no, this guy might be able to sit there and play the drums, but this is not the right person for yes. this gig. Or maybe somebody who was really good but just wasn't, you know, like keyboard player that is usually playing real sophisticated stuff and you're putting him on a country gig and he's not going to be satisfied with playing it simple. Which is funny, though, because talking about the dead, I heard Brent Midland say in an interview one time that when he joined the band, he had to alter his style because he was playing all this Chick Corea stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and real complex harmonies. And he said, you know, it took me a while to adjust to you know what, just a major chord is what this needs right here. Oh, yeah. And then recognizing that you've got this whole open-ended thing where at a given moment, there's all kinds of, of extensions going on. You just can't have everybody playing all that complexity. And it's like the, the flip side, like when you hear people playing jazz that aren't good, uh-huh. you know, and... You know, with all respect to all the people I've ever come across or heard, you know, there have definitely been times when you sit there and listen and go, all right, you're playing sophisticated stuff, but you're still not listening to each other. Yes. I'm looking at three people on a stage that are all on their own planet. Uh Uh-huh. As opposed to, now there's a conversation going on. The soup. Yeah, yeah. Allowing it to just become that one thing, which I have found that that might be one of the hardest things to do in Nashville. It's one of the easiest things to let it do whenever it happens. Mm-hmm. But to allow the music just to be itself yeah. and to realize that you are a vessel that these notes are passing through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're just trying to... And as a bass player, it's just like trying to hang back and feel it with a drummer and then listen to what the guitarist is doing. 
and let just it unify as much as possible. I heard who was saying this. Oh, God. Now it's really going to bother me that I don't remember who. Oh, no, I know. It was Ron Carter talking about playing with Miles Davis in the 60s. And the he said that he was playing with, and anyone that really knows the lineups, don't jump, jump on me for not remembering who was playing with who when. Uh-huh. Uh, but, you know, so you've got... So, like, for example, I don't know if Tony Williams and John McLaughlin and Ron Carter were in the same lineup, right? Uh But he's talking about playing with guys like that, that are just... Heavy hitters. Heavy, heavy hitters, and, you know, young guys who are hungry and pushing the boundaries. You know, they're trying to open up the frontier. And Ron Carter said, I realized that my role, while I'm surrounded by all of this was in any given moment to find the one note that tied it all together. And uh-huh. I thought, that's fucking brilliant. Yeah. That's, that's it. Right that is there. it, yeah. And that is how you become the guy that has played on more records than any other musician in jazz. Uh-huh. Is that mindset. And I just, I have so much respect for that because that's the pinnacle, you know? That's like, whatever is going on around me, that is going to determine what I do in this moment at all times. He's a, he's a great educator, too. Have you listened to any of his lectures that he oh, has yeah. online? He I actually, listen to him all the time. He came to my first... I had I moved around a bit in college. My first two years, I was at the University of Hartford, the Hart School. And they had, you know, and in my sort of callous youth, you know, I, I appreciated that these guys who were coming in were heavyweights, but I didn't appreciate just how heavy they were. Uh-huh. And he came in and gave a master class and spoke and was like, man, you know, but I didn't even, I didn't even know, you know, like just how heavy this was. From another galaxy. Yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, God, Yehudi Menuhin came in and, I mean, you know, internationally renowned, you know, and this is in Hartford, Connecticut. It's not like a big deal yeah. place, you know, but they got heavy, heavy people. And, yeah, and Ron Carter was one of the people who came in and taught and, and spoke. And it's just amazing when you really listen to these guys. And I still, to this day, you know, I love hearing what these guys have to say. And particularly, you know, I, 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 go, I go for the cosmic perspectives, you know. It's just like something that always, that always resonates. But it makes sense because, like, you know, what is the cosmic perspective? The cosmic perspective incorporates everything, the micro and the macro, you know, so the detail of what happens in this moment, but also the big picture of the whole musical universe, and how do you find your way through it? That maybe is another thing that I've really been obsessed with since moving here and being surrounded by musicians, because for every player, the micro and the macro is a little bit different, right? There's a universal truth, a thread that runs through everything, which is the music, which is the playing, but I think it comes down to the way that we even touch the instrument. Oh, heck yeah, yeah. Just by what we digested that is still maybe unknown to us today. Maybe a song we heard when we were four that Mm -hmm. still is somewhere back in our memories and in our minds that comes through whenever we're playing, like a certain fill or something like that. There have been times where I'll play something and I'll be like, "What? what is that? That sounds really familiar. And then I'll be like, oh, okay, that was just like... That was a Jamerson fill or something like right. that. Right, yeah, yeah. Oh, I've definitely gotten that. You listen back to something in a session and go, 
okay, there's a Gilmore lick that I just lifted. Uh-huh. You know, totally. <laughs> and not knowing in the moment, but you know, I, I heard Eric Clapton say in an interview one time that he might play something that he got from BB King, and he might play something that he got from Otis Rush, and connecting those two things was something that was him. You know, that little bit that yes. bridged those two things. But it's also, you know, what what makes an artist, what makes a musical personality is that you're the filter, that everything you ever listen to comes through, and no matter how faithful... I mean, some people really do try to faithfully duplicate something or replicate it, and some of them do it really, really well. Mm-hmm. But I find that those people, unless it's someone that is just so meticulous about, I'm going to make a study of this player and how to do this. Like, I'm sure if you join a serious tribute band and you really have to get into the details of how to put that across. But, you know, for the most part, people who do that, it's like, I feel like there's something missing because they're not tapping into themselves. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's not even to, well, I shouldn't say it's not to judge that, because who am I kidding? Um, (laughs) But, like, I mean, I I knew guys like this even in high school, you know, so, you know, it's the 80s, right? So, like, the the big dogs are, if you play guitar in the 80s, it was Van Halen and Randy Rhodes, right? Mm -hmm. That everybody was imitating. And, And I knew guys that had that just down. Now, granted, we were, you know, 18, 19... And I'm sure that many of these guys, years later, you know, picked up, you know, grew into their own kind of players. Mm-hmm. And when I was that age, first it was Eric Clapton that I was was emulating Clapton and Jimmy Page, and and Gilmore, and then it was Jerry Garcia, and then all these different things that work in there. And even now, like I get into a say it a jazzy kind of environment. And I know that in my brain I am going to West Montgomery or to Pat Metheny, depending on the context, or to John Schofield. And after a while, there's so many of these. And the thing that I still wrestle with is you become well-rounded and well-schooled and you've studied all these people and absorbed all this music. You don't just want to change channels in your brain. You know, so in this setting, I'm channeling Jerry Garcia. In this setting, I'm channeling Clapton. In this setting, I'm channeling John Schofield. Like, you still want to be you through all of that. And you is what gets you hired. Right. Well, yes. Sometimes. Yes. Yes. But, true. Yes. You know, you, you do have to know when that's just the right thing. But what I find most of all is if I let myself get lazy, then I fall back on the lifted stuff. Uh huh. And if I just don't allow myself to get lazy, I say, all right, you know, I mean, you have people say you're not supposed to think when you play, and I completely get that in the sense that when you are playing at your best, you're not thinking, you're being, you're a vehicle. Like you said, it just comes through you. The flow state. Exactly. Yeah, no, you can't claim it, even. It's like, I didn't do that. That just happened, man. I don't know where that came from. And I couldn't do it again if I wanted to, right? But the thought is not so much about, I'm using this mode, or I'm this, or I'm that. It's just... Okay, do something else. Now what? Where can I go from here? It's like it's like rock climbing, you know? It's like you got to keep moving. One of the things, you know, rock climbing, if you stop halfway up, not good. <laughs> yeah. You're going to have a problem. <laughs> but you're just you're always looking at and it's like where's the toehold? Where's the foothold? It's like mm. you know, it's this constant like navigating your way through this thing. And when that's conscious, 
to the sense of just not letting yourself fall into rote stuff, then I think you stay in yourself, or at least you're going, you're more likely to. I think that's the difference between an intermediate player and an expert player. I would say that's, that's one of the hallmarks of it, and it's a lot of the things that you're saying makes me really think, and this is something I've been thinking a lot lately, is that all music, if you, if you really boil it down to it, is folk music. Because it gets passed down. Yeah. Musicians are largely traditionalist. Mm-hmm. And the older musicians always want to share with the younger musicians. They want to keep it going. They want to keep it alive. And I think with the internet, there's a lot of people who are very angry about the internet. And they're angry that it's not 1976, that you can't get a record deal. Me, I don't care about any of that. I think this is so exciting. You can go on YouTube and you can look up anything. Yep. Any kind of music you want. And that's not even all the music that has ever even existed. Right. That's just a portion of it. And you can learn from it. So what are your thoughts on music in the 21st century and kind of where we are now with this whole library of music that we have at our fingertips? And also, what does it mean in terms of distraction? Mm. That's, the, that's good, because that's the double-edged sword. Yes. And, like... You had put something in the, the pre-interview questions about the effect of having all recorded music available at your fingertips, and that's something I think about a lot, and I think that's fascinating. That so, like your generation and younger musicians coming up now, your entire learning life, you have had access to everything ever you recorded, too. and I feel like even like in the earlier days of digital music, so like when the iPod first came out, mm-hmm. you know, and I would be impressed with looking at the playlists of, say, my students that were in high school, and their tastes were so much more diverse, and the playlists were so much more diverse than the average person that, you know, when I was in high school, you had your crowd and your people that you hung out with listened to particular kind of music, and you listened to this radio station, which determined that playlist. And I mean, I definitely was looking for different things. Sure. I was looking for music I didn't understand, and that was exciting. But at the same time, you had mainstream outlets that everybody got the same stuff from the same place. Mm-hmm. The rock station, yeah, the pop station. Right. And that doesn't exist anymore. No. And that's, that's cool. I mean, it creates a whole other challenge in that your audiences are fragmented now, too. And the stuff that achieves the greatest mass success in some ways kind of gets watered down to a lowest common denominator. But then again, maybe pop music has always done that. I don't know. I mean, I've listened to, you know, I've listened to Motown, and this is brilliant pop music. It's freaking perfect. Yeah. You know, you listen to the Beach Boys, it's brilliant. The Beatles, it's perfect. It's brilliant. Mm -hmm. And I listen to pop music now, and I really try to be open-minded because I don't want to be. So I'm 50 years old now. I don't want to be, get off my lawn with this music. You know? So I, I, when I have a, you know, a a 15-year-old who is, you know, learning how to play guitar... But at the same time, she loves Taylor Swift and Ariana Grande. Well, so I'm not going to, you know, look down my nose at that. I want to listen to, well, okay, what's making these songs compelling? What works here? What Everything doesn't? has value. Yeah, and to at least introduce, you know, I don't want to be like, well, pop music was better when, you know, when I was little. Uh-huh. But, you know, I, I do feel like there's, you're starting to see 
things morph. Like, all music has always developed through people influencing each other. Like you said, it's a folk process. And every new genre is a combination of genres that came before. Yes. Everything influences something else. That's just through, through all of music history. And all of the places that we look at as music centers, whether you're talking about New Orleans or you're talking about Memphis or Nashville or New York or any of the places where styles were, were formed, it's because you had people coming there and influencing each other. And so now, this, this is global. And it's so vast. So you talk about distractions. And I think part of the problem is that you can go into so many different directions that it's hard to nail down what your thing is. And, you know, one of the, the things I feel like I'm seeing with, with pop artists, or even with bands, is they pick an area or a sound or a territory and they mind that. And there are people that are really good at doing that and still synthesizing something into it. You know, so I look at somebody like Bruno Mars, who is obviously tremendously talented yeah, guy. Yeah, Bruno Mars is great. And has already covered a lot of bases musically in terms of what he's doing. Mm -hmm. There's still a sense of this right here is Earth, Wind, and Fire 1976. Yes. You know, this right here is this other thing. And, you know, what is he going to develop into over the next 20 years as he explores this stuff? For sure. He's, he's a real interesting artist because he does these throwback things that are very, like, specific sometimes, but every single thing he does is Bruno Mars. Yeah, exactly. Which is the, the hallmark of a great artist. Yeah. Is they're comfortable with being themselves and they know what that is and they don't try and resist it. Because right. it's easy to resist it once you start going down a path and you're like, well, I don't know if I really like this. It's just, right. Like for me, you know, I, I, I do something kind of specific too. We, I think we all do. And it's a matter of getting out of our own way and letting it open up and letting it just do its thing. Yeah. And being, being that vessel. And that's to that focus again. You know, and the other side of it is, okay, so what is, is Greta Van Fleet going to last 20 years and what are they going to sound like 20 years from now? And, you know, we, oh, well, they're just like Led Zeppelin. It's like, okay, well, you know, yes, Led Zeppelin was new. There was something new there when mm -hmm. they came out, but then there's all the stuff they lifted, you know. Oh, totally. And, and the Stones, it was new to their audience, but they were trying to sound like... The chess know. records. Yes, yeah. exactly. And and did a pretty damn good job yeah, of it for in sure. a lot of ways. You they know? did their own version of it. Yeah. Um, you know, now I feel like when you see the stuff that's derivative, it's maybe a little more derivative. Um uh, but then again, you know, you could poke holes in, in every one of these arguments. Sure. But just to kind of touch on one more thought about the distraction, and this is a different side of it, but I work with a lot of people in addition to the, the songwriter-artist thing. I think a really large percentage of people who play guitar is primarily guys and... A lot of over 40, a lot of guys like, you know, peers of mine, I would say, they grew up on classic rock and had a career and are at the point now where they've got some disposable income and some time. Mm -hmm. And so they always want to learn to play, so now they're learning how to play. I think a really sizable percentage of the guitars that are sold are being bought by these guys. And, 100%. Yeah, and I work with, I, I do... Um, instructional videos for 
a company that has an online lesson service called Jamplay. I've done like seven or eight lesson series for them. Their subscriber base is almost entirely, you know, men over 45. Uh-huh. Right? So, and most of these guys are not really, you know, some of them have friends they play with, they're able to get into bands, this and that, but for the they're most part... They're a little part, version of a garage band. Yeah, yeah, but for the most part, they're learning on the internet, on their own. And they all say the same thing. One guy said to me, I've got terabytes of hard drives full of, full of guitar lessons. I still can't play. I don't know what to do with all of this because there's all this information. Uh-huh. And it's not... Where do you start? Right. And it, you just get distracted by this, that, the other thing. And I've, I've finally, you know, like I got a call from a guy the other day who was really keen on telling me how much he knew before he got to what he wanted to learn because he went on and on and on and on. But, but, like, he was all these things he was interested in but that he ultimately wanted to write songs. And I said, you know, if you want to write, if you want to figure out who you are, I don't want to say you need to narrow your focus, but you kind of do. Because... There's only so much time in a day. There's no, And there's only so many... Like, if you're too diverse, and this was a lesson that I think I learned as a, as a recording artist, is that I wasn't focused enough, I think, in some way. Every record that I put out had outliers on it that were sort of confusing to a particular demographic. If you were listening to it just from a perspective of here's, you know, here's a collection of music, and it was all me, you know, it was all my songs, it was my voice, my guitar, but stylistically, it's still, there were always things that were kind of far enough away that someone who liked this wasn't necessarily going to like that. And, um, you st- and I remember even reading something, it was like in a guitar player magazine or whatever, and it might have been Steve Morse that was saying this, or they were talking about Steve Morse, I don't remember exactly. But that basically, if you were too diverse musically, that it was going to be harder to find an audience. And, and I really think that's true. I mean, once you've established an audience, then you can branch out. Which you is can, a gift just in itself. Yes. Yeah. yeah, you have to be able to cross over from somewhere. Uh-huh. And when you talk about the people that are really like a genre of one, like, I, I'm a huge fan of Lyle Lovett. I totally... Uh, he's one of my favorite songwriters. And as far as someone that has staked out a territory that's solely his, you know, or the band, still one of my favorite bands, you know, that, nothing sounds like them. The Dead, nothing sounds like them. Yeah. But the stamp of the personality is so strong that everything still kind of goes. And I think when you get too diverse... Unless your artistic personality is really shaping everything and bending it. If you're too much of a music student and trying too hard to be faithful, then you're just scattered. And, you know, I look at people that are into guitar, and they make guitar records. And, well, here's the shred tune, and here's the jazz tune, and here's the acoustic tune. And here's the country tune. Here's the blues and, tune. And I, you know, I, I did a record like that, and it was, you know, specifically, well, it was a chip-on-my-shoulder record. It was after putting three, two, two out with a country rock band and one singer-songwriter record to go, hey, uh, by the way, you know, that wasn't a session player playing the guitar on that. You know, that was me. So there's my chip on my shoulder going, I can play. And, I mean, that record did did well for me at, at that moment but in terms of 
you know, an, an artist personality. I look at, I mean, I've done 11 CDs over 20 years under five different names in four different genres. And, well, so that makes it kind of hard to build a consistent audience, you know, and that's that's a separate point from the commitment thing. Sure. And had I been fully focused on, I'm the artist, this is what I do, and that being the main thing all the time, maybe that would have been less of an issue. It, it, I mean, it, it ultimately did sort of focus in more, I think, now. You know, I feel like the, the music that I do now for myself is more dialed in to a core and there are other interests and other things, you know, like I don't need to incorporate a classical guitar just because I happen to still love it and I still play it, but it doesn't have a doesn't need to have a place on this record because I'm not trying to prove to you that I can do it. Yes. You know? So the 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 distractions are there's a real pitfall there in just becoming a player and finding your core. And I think so many people who were learning how to play, they get so distracted by, well, I learned all my modes. And I, you know, okay, well, what do you do with them? Well, nothing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, my, uh, my bass teacher, we've been going through all that stuff and, um, like, all the modes. She's having me go through all, all, this, all these different things. And now I'm starting to get gigs and everything like that. And we've been talking, and he's like, I'm sure now you see most of the stuff I'm teaching you, you're not really using. Right. <laughs> so, uh, which, which, is, which is funny because he's like, yeah, so most of this stuff you're not ever going to use, but it's that moment when you actually need it, it'll be there. Well, yeah, and it, it's developing a vocabulary and yes. just pushing musically, pushing your, your ability to express musically. So, yeah, when this situation arises, just like I said before about the thinking, what else can I do? I can do this. Oh, crap, that didn't work. You know, but yeah, it's it's that line though. We all want to be well-rounded players, and if you want to be a, you know, like I was talking about the successful side musicians that I know, for the most part. Now there are some that are personality stylists, and that's what they get called for to be themselves. But for the most part, you need to be a chameleon. You need to be able to fit into whatever the gig demands. But that's not what makes you an artist. And everyone that we ever grew up being inspired by, they were not chameleons. They were themselves. Yes. And as good as they could be, and as diverse as they could be, there was a thing. There was a sound, and you knew them when you heard them. Mm -hmm. And it's completely changed my philosophy about teaching because, you know, I, I'm not training professional musicians to be side players and be able to quote handle the gig and I think a lot of what's out there has that mindset you should be able to function in XYZ and that's true if you are going to be a gigging musician and you don't know what direction you're going in mm -hmm. but if you're a creative person you're writing songs you want to make something for yourself in music you gotta figure out who you are I think one person who is a pro at that is Jack White. I saw him the other night play at Bridgestone. Oh, yeah, I heard that was amazing. It was incredible. Uh, Jack White is Jack White. That's what he does. And he is, a, not only is he a, a good musician, like, specific at what he does and consistent at what he does, mm -hmm. but he's also a genius when it comes to business. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, as far as the marketing thing goes, so taking his, his ex-wife's last name and change because he his first name is actually John, so he goes by Jack White. Simple, two things you hear all the time. Right. In the White Stripes, mm -hmm. White Stripes break up. Of course, he does all of his other stuff, Third Man Records. 
but I just, uh, I think he's really interesting from a business aspect. And he talked a little bit about not being the kind of guy, and I think it's different for, for everybody. This is just what he believes, but not being the kind of guy that walks out on stage in jeans and a t-shirt. And that's not him. He comes out in a suit, like, yeah. like a gangster in the forties. Right. Like that's his thing. And just listening to him and watching him and seeing him live in person, I've always been kind of lukewarm to him. I always thought he was really good. I also listened to his interviews, and I thought he has a little bit of Kanye West in him, like that personality type, a little over the top. Mm -hmm. But that, again, is the genius businessman. He knows that's what makes people turn heads. And if 20 people look over and then five of them actually listen to his music, then he knows one of those people will actually end up being a fan and buy his music. Yeah. Well, and if you think about, so when they came out, that was what, 2000, 2001, something like that? Yeah, like, somewhere in there. who, from that era, who has has established themselves as one of those recognizable personalities who have done as many things as he has? There's really just a handful. I mean, he's one. I mean, I will say that John Mayer is another. Uh, John Mayer's fantastic. And he's, yeah. he's interesting because... He does have kind of a split personality. Mm-hmm. He's the pop artist and he's the ferocious guitar player. He's oh, an amazing yeah. guitar player. He shreds. He's absolutely People incredible. People sleep on him. But, you know, he started from, I mean, he again, talking about diverse, like that first record is pretty damn diverse. Um, they just, you know, they knew what the radio singles were. Uh-huh. They, he knew, it's like there was a dual audience there. There was the female, primarily female pop listeners, and there was the probably primarily male, although not anymore. You know, I mean, even when I was teaching guitar in the 80s and 90s, it was, you know, 80% male. Maybe 85, maybe even closer to mm-hmm. 90. Now, 50-50. My student pace, you know. Really? Yeah. Easily. Um, but, you know, he had a pop audience, and he had a guitar audience. Mm-hmm. And so he makes a record for his pop audience, he makes a record for his guitar audience. Yes. And I can't think of anybody else that has done that quite as successfully. And his guitar records don't sell nearly as many, I'm sure. But He, he scratches that itch. Yeah, he does. And he cultivates that audience. And there's, I'm sure there's people out there that I'm not aware of. I mean, that's one other thing about the modern music business. It is more fragmented, but you can make a solid living in a niche mm-hmm. if you mine that territory and there's an awful lot of people and you talk about you know getting the big record deal back when and what that meant and it's not the same anymore no. but it doesn't have to be no it doesn't you can have a completely sustainable living as a performing musician and have an audience that's that much more deeply committed to what you do niche audiences are fierce you know, oh, yeah, niche audiences like they 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 care, they're paying attention, mm-hmm. they're buying your records, they're coming to your shows, buying T-shirts, posters, mm-hmm. yeah, and there's got to be. I'm sure there's tons of people out there that I'm not aware of, and like I said, in in my desire to remain tuned in, at least, you know, like I'm not going to tell you that I listen to lots of new music all the time we were talking about podcasts before and Mm -hmm. in the car that's half the time that's what I've got on but but, you know just as often you know put something up on Spotify and I like when it starts going to uh, mixing up the playlist 
Like if you pull up a particular record and it plays through the record, but then it starts pulling in other artists. Mm -hmm. And I do discover a lot of good stuff. There's a wormhole there. Yeah. It's like alternate reality. Mm -hmm. Uh, That makes me think about uh, John Mayer. I was watching this interview with him, and he was talking about now being where he is in his career. This was around when the Search for Everything came out. I was working at Bridgestone at the time, so I got to be there and see him play. Mm -hmm. And he didn't play Your Body is a Wonderland that night which arguably might be his biggest hit in some right. ways. But the thing that he said is, is he was aware that it was an audience more so than other places that was going to be full of musicians. Right. And in his interview, he was just saying, like, the people that come to the, the show, like, he was aware the people that came to that show, they want to hear John Mayer trio. Mm-hmm. They want to hear him and Pino and Steve just, like, shredding. Yeah. So, I, I don't know. I just think that's, that's really interesting, kind of the, the niche audience thing, because he does have these two... Because there was a lot of soccer moms there. Because, of course, now they all have kids. They're growing up. This was mm-hmm. their night out. And then there was a lot of guys that were in their 20s and that are fans of the Grateful Dead. That's a whole mm-hmm. other uh, aspect of people that he brought in now. Right, yeah. Deadheads. And he got, and that that he's been accepted by that audience because there was a lot of skepticism. Oh, I remember, yeah. But he, I mean, I, I listened to the first show at Soldier Field when he first came out with them. And they played Help on the Way, which, I mean, arguably, I think, the most difficult dead piece to play well is that whole Help on the Way, Slipknot, Franklin's Tower thing. And nailed it. I mean, just absolutely dead on. It was like, okay, he he did his homework, and he's embraced what it is. So there's there's a lot to respect there. And, you know, like I said, I'm sure that there are other people out there... um, in terms of like finding these things, so someone that I uh, so this is might qualify as a niche artist uh, that I discovered recently is Sarah Longfield. I don't know if you ever heard her. I've never heard her. Um, she plays eight string guitar, a lot of tapping. Um, came from, plays in the metal band called Define Constant. I say metal, it's probably more like, you know, I don't even have all the terms right, uh-huh. whether it's math rock or math core or whatever it is, one of these things. Two eight-string guitars and a drummer, kind of like uh, Animals as Leaders. Mm-hmm. But, you know, changing time signatures every other Super bar. Musical. And, yeah, heavy, heavy, you know, and very aggressive. But then she comes out with this stuff, and now she's and singing, and these atmospheric spacey things combining synth and guitar and the tapping guitar is in there but building these layers of loops but not the way that I'd heard other people do it before and the songs are this harmonic language that I that was really different and a really strong voice there in terms of coming from another place and granted there's probably this whole set of artists that she came up with that I don't know anything about which is always, you know, look at the way that Nirvana introduced people to the Pixies. Yeah, you know? totally, absolutely. And, you know, something becomes more mainstream, go, oh, well, who influenced that? You know, mm-hmm. no different even than back in the 60s, you know, all these blues artists being The Rolling Stones. Yeah, exactly. Cream, all those guys would talk about yeah. all the blues artists that they loved. But I, I thought it was really interesting to hear what Sarah Longfield was doing, and some of the people that she got playlisted with were more of your sort of traditionally sort of Satriani Vi influenced um, shred type players but there was a lot of cool musical stuff going on there 
the thing that struck me about Sarah Longfield was that there were moments that sounded to me like 1975 Genesis um, in the way that the sounds were put together and this sort of impressionistic kind of harmony, which is the thing I always loved the most about that band, is that here you know you had a keyboard player that had sort of processed Beethoven and Debussy in a way that was not Wick, not like Rick Wakeman doing the the big you know or um, uh, or Keith Emerson you know which is you know wearing a cape and the big you know dramatic the thing the over the top yeah, yeah but just like this real I mean I I think Tony Banks is is a brilliant brilliant musician is you know, I think he is a I mean I. Genesis, I think the musicianship is tremendous. I'm a big fan of the 70s prog, yes, and Genesis primarily, and Jethro Tull. But in terms of the the language, the musical language, that I listen to the opening of The Land Lies Down on Broadway, and I hear Debussy. You know, I, I listen to the opening of Firth the Fifth, and I hear Beethoven and Chopin, but not in the, to me, more self-conscious way that someone like that say Emerson Lincoln Palmer did it um, or even that Ingve Malmsteen does it uh-huh. you know where that's very much here is this thing it was its own thing and I thought that Sarah was doing something like that in the sense that I could pinpoint some of where it was coming from but not all of it and clearly a millennial perspective too because like there's all this breakbeat stuff in there too which is still something like the EDM thing eludes me. I still, you know, it, it doesn't speak to me in yeah, any way. I can but, understand that. But I'm interested in when you can take technology and meld it with older technologies, older sounds, mm-hmm. and do something interesting with that. Well, that's what Bruno Mars does well. Yes. And Mark Ronson, um, the music producer, mm-hmm. I worked with Amy Winehouse. Is like mm-hmm. that that Back to Black record. That record is really a soul record, but through the lens of hip hop. Yeah, and that's it's. See, that's the other thing, though, is that the, you've got a generation now that has absorbed hip hop, the hip hop rhythmic aesthetic, uh-huh. which is very different. And for sure. So I went to I actually judged at a songwriting competition last week. And one of the four finalists is someone that I had worked with previously, and um, she's young. She's 16, I think, maybe 15. Uh, Her name is Taylor Gale. And I guess when I heard her first, she was 12 and writing more sort of country pop type stuff. Taylor Swift stuff. I hadn't heard her in a while. And she's doing this intense she's got this almost like Kate Bush Tori Amos kind of intensity about what she's doing mm-hmm. but she's got hip hop phrasing and it was like this is going somewhere really cool and she's 15 or 16 mm-hmm. like what's she gonna do in 10 years 20 years yeah you know it's fascinating to see well it makes me also think of the, the Arctic Monkeys record AM Have you are you familiar with no. that at all so that record, um, it was like the genesis of Arctic Monkeys. That was that was the, the point where they became, they broke in America, basically. Because mm-hmm. they, they had always been huge all over the world. But th- it was their, I think it was their fifth record. 
and that was a record where they were like, okay, everything is just going to be a simple bass line and a Dr. Dre beat. Mm. And he was kind of like sing rapping over everything, but it was still very rock and roll. There was something very rebellious about it. But we are in this time where everything is something else, disguised as something else, and it's always changing. So I, I find that to be pretty exciting. Yeah. And maybe it is, and again, speaking to the fragmentation of music, I feel like there hasn't been a a game changer in the mainstream I was for right a about while. That a long time. And I mean, I, I also appreciate that, you know, like it or not, I have an older person's sensibility just in terms of what I grew up on. Sure. And plus the fact that, you know, like when I was in high school and learning how to play, it might have been the early 80s, but a lot of us were not quite embracing new. A lot of us still were looking back. I spent a lot of the 80s pretending it was the 60s, and you can take that to mean whatever you like. But, um, you know, I, I was listening to Jimi Hendrix. I was listening to Zeppelin, and it was like, man, I never got to see these people. And, you know, I was listening to contemporary music at the same time. Like, you know, I don't even think I fully appreciate it. I listen to The Police now. I go, holy shit, yeah, are they they're good. They're oh my fucking God. phenomenal, yeah. You know? And I liked them, but it wasn't, you know, like I couldn't quite wrap my brain around what Andy Summers was doing, so I wasn't recognizing what it as What creative guitar. voicings. Oh, God, and the sounds, and yeah. just the whole approach is like, I think that was partly why I liked metal, because it was like, this is a guitar. Yeah. You know, it was in your face. Mm -hmm. And I remember Frank Zappa in an interview talking about, you know... It's gotten to the point where guitar players now, they just go wank, wank, wank. And so everybody, if they hear something and it doesn't go wank, 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 they go, that's not a guitar. Mm -hmm. And I laugh now because I kind of was there too. Yeah, you know? totally. But, you know, th there was a, a, a looking back at that moment, you know, and, and a lot of us were, were doing that. And you were still taking in contemporary sounds to a certain extent. Now, of course, I was also, you know, I was discovering jazz, and I was, you know, like, going to college in New York City in the 80s, there was a lot of, you know, the avant-garde thing was just exploding, and so there was so much cool stuff to take in. And that was exciting. But, you know, from, in terms of my ultimately still very mainstream sensibility, and that is as a rock musician with a very diverse background and a diverse ear, but ultimately, I still grew up in the suburbs in Long Island, sure. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and in what I came up on and what I'm aware of, but I think about rock music, which I know is not culturally relevant in the way that it was, Yeah, um, it's still important, but it's, it's, it's not the dominant musical yeah. force anymore, but in terms of bands and artists that were game changers, you know, Obviously, the Beatles were game changers. You can start from there. I mean, Elvis, Chuck Berry, all of that. Go yeah. all the way back. But after Nirvana, maybe Radiohead. Yeah. You know? Um, and Radiohead, arguably still more a critics band than a sure. huge mainstream there was success. No, there's been no cultural moment the way that there was with Nirvana where there was just this giant shift in culture right. where everybody was trying to do that unless thing. you want to talk about Taylor Swift who everybody loves to slag on yeah but, but yeah she I mean yeah if you really think about it she she's a genius as far as business goes yes um, but I think that she really set out to be something 
like never before, and she's succeeding in it. And yeah. that makes me think, did you hear about a record deal? So she recently signed a record deal with, uh, I think it was Universal, and one of the things that was the terms of the contract is that musicians are to be paid now for their contributions like via Spotify. So mm-hmm. like royalties, they're going to be getting a slice of that now if they play right. on a song. So let's say T-Swift calls you up and asks you to play on a song that ends up being a hit. You would be getting Spotify royalties. Wow. She nego- she had, I guess she had the negotiating power. She went to the other two labels and they were like, no, fuck you, we're not going to do that. Right. But Universal was like, we're about to have Taylor Swift, so we're going right. to do it. So it's interesting because she's certainly not breaking any new ground musically, although she inspired, I mean, like I said, my my teaching studio, 50% female. Mm-hmm. You know, that's in large part because of her. her yeah, you can't and, deny it. And certainly, you know, and, and someone could be listening to this right now going, Joan Jett. I'm like, okay, yeah, Joan Jett too. I get it. But yeah. Joan Jett was an anomaly, you know, back then. For and sure. She, which she will tell you herself. But, you know, Taylor Swift, like, and I think I read, maybe it was, in, I don't remember if it was the New York Times or whatever it was, but there was a piece out there that Taylor Swift is responsible for more guitar sales single-handedly than anybody else out there. So I Eddie Van Halen that. was the guitar hero when I was coming up. Now, but it's Taylor Swift, you know? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, you I can, never thought about it in those terms before. But yeah, you I, can I think bemoan that all you want. But hey, it's happening. So right. I think, like the way that I see it, is at least it's still happening. Well, and that's part of what I think is so interesting about someone like a Sarah Longfield, who is a shredder on guitar, but is still incorporating technology and other sounds, and the whole idea of a soundscape. And, you know, so there are people who've done that. I think St. Vincent is interesting that She's way. She's fantastic, yeah. Um, I, I, I can't tell you I get her. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've tried. Mm-hmm. And maybe I just haven't heard the right thing yet. But I just, you know, I pulled up Spotify and just sat and listened. And it's like, okay, I hear pop music. I hear some interesting things being put together. Maybe seeing her live would be a different experience. Yeah. But, you know, but I know that there's a synthesis going on there. And, uh, and that that has attracted enough attention that I know who she is. Yeah. And that says something right there. And So who is the next game changer going to be? And, you know, are they even going to play an instrument? Or ultimately, though, if someone is working entirely in the digital realm, they're still playing an instrument. Yeah. You know, like, I, I can't sit there and say, oh, well, you know, that's not a physical instrument that you touch. Well, look at the new control surfaces. You know, some of these things that have like that you manipulate in these different mm-hmm. tactile ways the the keyboard like controller that has basically just the shapes of the keys but they're not defined so you can slide on and off it and things I've like that I've seen those yeah and there's a bunch of things like that and so the way that the tactile experience which is you know something else in my doing the writing that I'm doing and exploring um all of this stuff that is going to eventually be a book if I finish it. No, I'm not saying if. I'm going to finish it. That's yes. One of the things that I said this year was I want to write a book, and I've got about 30,000 words written, so it's definitely um, it's coming along. But the exploration of like just thinking about the way I see music and realizing that the tactile aspect of playing music, of touching the guitar, touching a keyboard, a drum, something you know that has that, that, that feedback... That's so important to me, you know. That's part of why I play music, is that kind of that energetic contact with something. And 
that you can absolutely still have that in the digital realm with the right controllers. And if you look at how successful Ableton Live has been, because of the tactile aspect, mm -hmm. you know, why people like that, as opposed to working in Pro Tools and everything being keyboards and keyboard shortcuts and, and mouse clicks, but to still shape something with your hands, even though you're shaping it by giving commands to a computer. You know, will there always be room for guitars? I mean, there's still people playing shams and sackbutts and these Renaissance instruments uh -huh. and lutes, and, and obviously it's about as niche as niche can be. It's very specific. But at the same time, there's, there's not more than a handful of people doing it, but they're doing it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, is an electric guitar ever going to be that much of a museum relic? I hope not. Yeah. You know, I don't think so. Just given that you still have, you know, you have 10-year-olds that think ACDC is the coolest thing ever, which, as well they should. Yeah, When totally. you're 10, seriously. Yeah. Kiss ACDC, like, you know. Just big guitar rock. Yeah, yeah. And, and even just the whole, you know, the look of it. And you know how, ex you think of how exciting it was. Or, <laughs> what came on? Oh, I know what it was. One of these YouTube surfing things, and I went down an, an Iron Maiden rabbit hole. Uh -huh. And, like, watching those videos from 1982, and, you know, me being 14 and just going, like, salivating at how uh -huh. cool was this, you know? And there is always... Or, um, I just read a piece recently about Metallica, and I didn't even know this, but how Metallica has sold more records worldwide than... There were a bunch of artists that it was very surprising to me, pop artists, rock artists, that the numbers, it was like, it's like 100 million records worldwide. I mean, it's, it's a crazy number. Mm -hmm. And how that a band like that, that ultimately still is niche in its own way, True. this huge mainstream success and resonating with people. Across multiple generations. And across multiple cultures. And yes. honestly, like, I'm not even a Metallica fan. I like the, I, I think I like the fact that there is a Metallica. Sure. More than I actually like the music. That's fair. You know, and I sat down and I watched some kind of monster, which was very entertaining, and I really enjoyed it. And then I tried to get back into listening to him again. I tried listening to St. Anger, and I couldn't. Yeah. And it was just like, oh my God, these are the worst drum sounds I've ever heard in my life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it just, it doesn't speak to me, but I respect what they accomplished, but you know, that resonates. And as long as there are particularly young guys, you know, 13, 14 years old, trying to find, you know, their way in the world and to deal with what it feels like to be, and, and again, with all respect to all the metal chicks out there, because I know there's a lot of them, and uh -huh. I, can I still say chicks? Is that, look, it's, I've, I, I said I'm 50, deal with it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, like, you know... Let's face it, there's that... Yeah. And that's not exclusively a male thing, but it's a male thing. Yeah. And The testosterone. You know, that's... Right. I mean, like, that's that's never gonna go away. Yeah. And, you know, as our, our culture gets... I don't know. I mean, in some ways, you know, we've, we've certainly taken a turn into... You know, again, with the fragmenting, there is a place... Still, still... A, you know, there's, there's always going to be a place for that, I think. Getting punched in the face. Well, kind of, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and honestly, like, here's talk about life lessons, you know, 
to be able to take a punch to the face, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and still... Keep you know, moving. Shit's coming at you, and you yeah. still got to be able to deal with it, mm-hmm. metaphorically or realistically, you know, whatever's going on. Like, getting back to the Giger thing, okay, bar fight breaks out in front of you, and you're in this neighborhood place, there's no stage. <laughs> the only no thing security. between you and this is the yeah. mic stand. Yeah. Well, what are you going to do? Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I, I, I would like to think that at least the energy of what rock and roll is, even if that morphs into something else, is something that's going to continue to exist. Yes. And the fact that I still see kids wanting to play the electric guitar, I think that's encouraging. That I know, you know, millennials who are devoted to the blues. You know, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, that's cool. What are they going to do in 20 years, in 30 years? What's that going to become? So who knows? I think that's the perfect note to close it out on. There you go. Thank you for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. This was a ball.